Father above, I pray that we would hear the words and the invitation of your Son this morning. Amen. Most of y'all likely know that I love to chase the secondary themes of the Bible that are oftentimes overlooked. I love the images that God has painted in creation and history itself, the things theologians call types, the things that are far more significant than they seem at first glance. Things like the wilderness, things like food or fire, or in the case of this passage, water. These things God uses to actually communicate far more than we expect. He's embedded his truth in creation. Today, like I said, one of those beautiful secondary themes of the Bible flows through our passage, water. And I want to trace it over the course of the Bible. In order to do that, we need to start basically at the beginning, at Genesis 2. And before you get nervous, I'm not going to touch every single reference along the way, just most of them. This is Genesis 2, verses that, if you remember, you've probably forgotten. I know that's an oxymoron. If you've read, you probably didn't notice. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates, a river flowing out of the garden that splits into four and waters the whole earth. You might just go, uh, Stephen, it's a garden. You need water in a garden. It's just a river, right? Hold on. Give me the benefit of the doubt for just a moment. I want to jump forward to Ezekiel 47. This is the time of the exile when the temple has been destroyed and God shows Ezekiel a vision of the temple restored in its glory and purity of worship. Then he brought me, that is Ezekiel, back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar, Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces towards the east. And behold, water was trickling out from the south side, going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand. The man measured a thousand cubits. And then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand more cubits, and he led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand more and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river, and as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arva and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, 
Every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so that everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, from Engedi to Engelheim. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and its marshes will not become fresh. They are left for the salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. You see the picture in your mind? Rivers flowing out every direction from the temple and everything they touch life springs forth. Trees with healing in their leaves, fruit, fish, people along the banks, life, joy, blessing, everywhere this water touches, all flowing from the temple. Think of Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is a psalm about the world being in chaos. We all remember the one line, be still and know that I'm God. But the rest of the psalm is the world is absolutely falling apart. It begins, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in this trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The world's in chaos and war. But there's a refuge in the city of God, in Jerusalem, because God is there. It's secure. And what do you find in that city? A river. A river whose streams make the whole city rejoice. That makes them glad and full of joy. It's Psalm 46, by the way, that should clue us into the fact that this is not just a mere river. It's not just water to make a garden grow. Because do you know what there is not in Jerusalem in the city of God? There is no river. Something else is being talked about in all of these passages, something that water merely points to. At this point, we could sort of gather these images together and sort of put all the pieces that we've gotten so far and say whether we're talking about perfection before the fall in Eden or whether we're talking about in the midst of chaos, being in the presence of God, being in his refuge, or whether you're talking about this vision of Ezekiel of all things being renewed in the end, in each and every instance, God uses the picture of water flowing for the life that he will offer to people, for the joy that he will offer to people. And you know what's startling in all of these pictures? Where does the water issue from? It comes from his very self, from his temple. You don't see it as clearly in Eden because we forget that Eden was a temple. That garden was the type of a temple. And so water flowing from there to heal the whole world, you see it though clearly in Ezekiel, where it comes from the very threshold of the temple. Wherever 
God wants to paint this picture of his life spreading out to fill the whole world. It always comes from his presence, and it always flows like a river. With all that in mind, think about the passage that we read in Exodus 17. Like I said, rivers are never just mere rivers. The people are in the desert. By the way, as soon as you start thinking in this, you realize that what does desert mean? If it's not wet, it's the opposite of God's life. The people are in the desert. And when you're distant from the life of God, it's terrifying. And they're scared and angry and quarreling. Are we supposed to die here, they say? And so God says, take this rock, the one that's at Horeb. You may remember this, you may not. Horeb is the other name for Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is a picture of a temple. That's what mountains symbolize. Because it's on Mount Sinai that God comes down in the pillar of smoke and fire the same way he does in the tabernacle to meet with man on the top of this mountain. Mount Sinai is a temple, as it were. And he says, take this rock that's at the base, the foundation of the temple. It begins to sound just like Ezekiel's vision, does it not? And he says, break this rock. And then water will go out into the wilderness and everyone will live. It's not just God meeting the physical needs of his people. It is that, of course. But it's so much more. It's like in the desert, God is painting the exact same picture that he's going to show Painting in watercolor, that's for Chris, but he's not here. Painting in watercolor, the exact same picture that he will show Ezekiel. Water flowing from the temple to bring life wherever it touches. In that moment, Exodus 17, he's doing what the sons of Korah saw in Psalm 46, that where there's the presence of God, there's got to be a river flowing from him. And that river brings life and joy. It's what he did in Genesis at creation. All of these pictures pointing to the same thing. But there's more to the story. Paul says something startling in 1 Corinthians 10. Because in 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul's retelling this story of the temptation in the wilderness, he says something startling of the rock. He says the rock that was broken is Jesus Christ. That's a claim that we might not see coming. And Paul's claim there makes us realize that if we ever look at these stories and say, they're just material things that God does, we've missed the most important point. That God is painting pictures and history and creation to teach us something. And Paul says that the rock is Jesus Christ. In other words, the picture that we've seen all along, that water flows from the presence of God from his temple to fill the earth with life and joy, that this is the picture that he uses. It's not just that water flows from the Father's temple, that water flows from the Father's temple, but what's the conduit? What's the channel? It's the broken sun. The sun, broken for us, becomes the place that water pours for us. You see the image of the spear piercing Christ's side on the cross and water flowing forth. All over the scriptures and in history, God has painted this picture that water pours forth from his presence, from his temple, 
And it pours forth to bring life to those who would drink of it to the entire world. And it flows where it will and brings joy and healing. But always, it flows through the broken body of the Son. I'm going to end this biblical survey in a second. Like I said, I'm not going to touch all the passages. There's too many more. (laughs) No. But there's one in the end that I think brings them all together. One in the end that I think is actually beautiful. This is Revelation 22. The angel showed me the river of water of life. Bright is crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. These same words and images from Ezekiel, from the desert, from the Garden of Eden, we see it at the end that the water flows from the very throne of God and from the Lamb through the broken body of the Son. By the way, you might be tempted to go, okay, that's nice, nice picture. What's next? But for some reason, this particular image seems profoundly important to God. It's all over the Bible. You see it at the very beginning in Genesis, and you see it at the very end in Revelation. You see it in the wilderness when God's constituting a new people for himself to describe how they will get their life. You see it in the prophets. You see it in the Psalms. All other over the Bible, this image is prevalent. And we say, why does he care so much that we see this picture of his life flowing forth? Why does water have to symbolize it? Why does Jesus speak of it so often? Because it's, of course, this image that he's referring to when he says to the Samaritan woman, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for water. The water flowing from the broken body of the Son of God. And he says, if you only knew if you only knew what I could offer you. I don't know what she understood. The Samaritans rejected most of the Old Testament scriptures. They actually didn't listen to the Psalms and the prophets. But they did read the Pentateuch, those first five books. And this story is already there in the Pentateuch. I don't know what she understood when he said, if you only knew this water of life could be yours. She obviously heard and understood just enough to say, I want what you're offering. It took a moment, but she got there and she said, would you give it to me? Would you give it to me? But all this raises the question for us, what was Jesus actually offering? What is this water of life that God seems so concerned with? so concerned with that he writes it into history and puts it in creation and covers scriptures with it. What is the water of life itself? In order to understand that, we need one more passage. I think this is the last one, except for the one more that I'll use. At the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus is in Jerusalem. And he's in the midst of, you know, tabernacles, the one that comes in the fall where they build booths and live outside. Jesus is in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up. By the way, people around him must have thought that man is a lunatic. In the midst of the feast, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Like I said, I don't know what the Samaritan woman would have understood, but I think the people around Jesus would have understood the reference. It's too prevalent in the Old Testament. And he cries out in the midst of the feast, if you are thirsty, if you're one of those people out in the wilderness of life, thinking that you're going to die, that there's nothing for you. If you're thirsty, one of those people of Psalm 46 who see the world in chaos and wonder how it will be put back together. If you're thirsty, one of those people of Ezekiel 47 longing for the redemption of all things when all things get put back together. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And then John comments, Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been yet been given, for Jesus had not yet been glorified. John connects the dots for us. What is this water of life that flows from the presence of the Father through the broken body of the Son to all who would receive it? It's the free offer of the Spirit himself. This picture that God is so concerned that we don't miss is painted in the very world that we live in, in creation itself, and painted all over history so that we don't miss it. That the Spirit is offered freely. That the Spirit brings life. That the Spirit flows from the presence of the Father through the broken body of the Son. That's the only way it gets to us, through the cross. But that all who come to Jesus are given it freely, and it becomes in them a well of life that overflows for those around them. This, by the way, is why we confess in the creed that the Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. Because every time the Bible paints the picture of the Spirit with water, what do you see coming everywhere where the water touches? Life. This is, by the way, in the creed we confess that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, because it comes from the presence of the Father, from his temple, through the broken body of the Son to us. We can't have the Spirit without the cross. It goes through Jesus' pierced and broken body. God uses the gift of water to reveal this gift of the Spirit to us. And it's a picture that we actually should all get and understand. Without water, there is no life. He wrote it into the very fabric of biological creation so that we would get the point. Without water, there is no life. And you draw the parallel. Without the Spirit of God, there is no life. He wrote it in the fabric of creation so we would understand the longing that we ought to have for the Spirit because we all know what it means to thirst. Not perhaps in the way that people who live in a desert land understand thirst, but we do understand thirst what it means after hard work to long for a drink of water. And he wrote that into the fabric of creation so that we would understand the longing that we are supposed to have for the Spirit of God. These things are written into the very fabric of the world, into our history, so that we will not miss that unless we have the Spirit, 
we have no life. And the Spirit only comes through the broken body of the Son from the presence of the Father to us. We are supposed to thirst for that Spirit. And yet, it is true that we so often try to deal with that thirst by going to other sources that seem to offer the life that only the Spirit can offer. We are guilty of that thing that God said, this is the one more I said we would have to get to. We are guilty of what God said to Jeremiah. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've done so to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. How much does that describe us? Looking in places that cannot bring the life that we need. Whether it's through our careers, whether it's through the pleasures that we pursue, whether it's through simply getting our own way on a daily basis, there are so many little things that we put there, little wells we dig, trying to say, give me the life that I desire. Give me the life that I need. Guilty of forsaking the, living, the fountain of living waters for these wells, these cisterns that can hold no water. And yet God paints this story into creation so that we won't miss it. I need to close because the Lenten services are long. There's so many things that we could say about this story. And we started late because it's daylight savings time. Can't blame that one on me. So many places we could go with this. And so many things that we could say about this scene with the Samaritan woman. I mean, I really do encourage y'all to take home and wrestle with the fact that God promises that all who come to him and receive this water of life, this spirit, become their own little mini fountain. In other words, for those people in your life who are desperately trying to find life in all of the wrong places, you can become a mini source of this water for them. That's staggering that we are dignified in that way to participate in the very work of God. But the thing that I want to close with is this simple question of what does it mean to receive this water, this spirit? And I want to close with this because I think that this is probably where many of us are. Where we hear this and we say, yes, I believe this. I've got enough experience with my own life to know that the things that I try to do to create life in me don't work. And I want the Spirit of God to fill me with his life, that life that I can't find for myself. I think there's many of us who probably grapple with that. So the question is, what does it mean to receive? We come to Jesus and we say, give me this, give me this, give me this. And then the next day we say, I feel no different. When will God show up? There's something beautiful in the story of this woman. Because when she finally turns and says, Sir, give me this water. What does Jesus begin to do? He begins to pull away all of the things she hides behind. Go get your husband. I don't have one. Answer, she's trained herself to give. And he says, yeah, that's half true. But you know there's a lot hiding behind that answer. That's a wall that you're using to protect yourself from God. And he begins to pull away the pieces of her life to reveal the depth of her own heart need for the life of God. I think this is beautiful. 
Because I think for many of us, there are so many places where we've actually covered over the depths of our longing for God's presence. We've hidden it. We block those passages because they hurt too much to acknowledge. And so we say, I want this life. I want this life. And all the while, the deepest recesses of our heart are walled off so that the water can't enter. And what Jesus does is he begins to pull it apart. What are those things that are hidden in you that you won't acknowledge even to yourself? I think this begins to reveal to us that coming to receive this water necessarily means the depth of confession that most of us are uncomfortable with doing. I'm not just talking about confession of sin, but I'm talking about confession of the deepest hurts that we have, the deepest longings that have been unmet, the things we're scared to say to God because we think maybe that would mean that we're not really believing him or trusting him. The depth of honesty of saying, this is actually all that I am. There's an honesty needed to receive this water, and this story shows it to us. But there's one other aspect of that that I think is worth pointing out before we close, and that is that this work of honestly revealing ourselves is work that we can't do on our own. This woman couldn't have done it. It takes Jesus asking questions, probing, pointing with his finger, and revealing things. There are things that we use to block ourselves from the life of God that we don't even know that we're doing. David alludes to these at the end of Psalm 19, sins that are beyond our even our consciousness. And I think the real cry of this passage is that we actually need Jesus to show up and to begin to reveal who we actually are. Because we tell ourselves a story over and over. And we believe that story because we tell it so frequently. And in a certain sense, those things just to be pulled away. And we need to stand open and revealed before Jesus. And so my encouragement to y'all is very simply, remember this thirst for the water of life. And then come before the Son and say, I need you to reveal me too. I need you to open up the places where I've hidden from you. Open up the places where I've run away from you. And expect that he loves you enough that he will begin to do that in time. Amen.